The following audio is brought to you by Summerside Community Church in London, Ontario. For more information on Summerside, visit us online at www.summersidechurch.ca. Good morning. My name is Luke. I'm the associate pastor here at Summerside. And today, well, tomorrow is a week till Christmas. So that kind of... That might take you by surprise. And speaking of being prepared, you know, some of us may feel like we're not prepared for Christmas. And how much more is it important to prepare our hearts, even though the outside, maybe we don't have our presents ready, maybe we don't have the food that we need to go buy, and we're going to have to line up at Costco for hours. But to prepare our hearts, what a great reminder in that song, to prepare him room, because we aren't, maybe we aren't ready for joy and peace to come. So uh, let's, uh, let's be reminded of that as we get in this morning to God's word. Marley was dead to begin with, or to those Muppet fans, the Marleys were dead to begin with. This is the opening line of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. And a great opening line makes all the difference. It sets the scene for the reader. It sets the tone of the book. It introduces themes and creates tension. It draws you in and makes you want to keep reading. Here are a couple more opening lines from Christmas classics. Every who down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot, but the Grinch who lived just north of Whoville did not. This is a miracle on 34th Street. If you search every old folks home in the country, you couldn't find anyone who looked more like Santa Claus. There is one opening line from a Christmas story that hits different. There's one opening line that stands out from all the rest. And I can confidently say, without apology, without exaggeration, beyond the Christmas genre, including any, any book of the Bible even, arguably, there is no line so rich with meaning, so clear and yet profound. And I believe this opening line is itself an argument for divine inspiration itself. Because no human could write this on their own. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1, verse 1. Now, we could spend all our time in this one verse today, but we're going to look at Christmas beyond the major in John 1, 1 to 14. And this is the Christmas story like you've never heard it before. There's no angels. There's no shepherds in the fields tending their flocks by night. There's no star. There's no Magi, no Mary, no Joseph, no Bethlehem, no baby Jesus in the manger. And while the familiar Christmas narratives you know, focus on Jesus' human origins and fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies in real time, in real places, John focuses on Jesus' divine origins and the mystery of the Trinity and the Incarnation. Something only Jesus himself and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit could have given to John personally. John, in the Gospel of John, is inviting us to see Jesus beyond the manger and marvel at the wonder and mystery of the incarnation so that you may believe and ultimately come to know Jesus as personally as John did himself as his best friend. We're going to walk through the passage and discover who John says Jesus is. Jesus is the Word, Jesus is the light, and Jesus is the life. Each of us has an opportunity and responsibility to believe 
in the word so that we can have life and shine his light in the world. I want you to stand right now as I read John 1, 1 to 14. We're going to stand together and let me read this for you. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He came himself, he himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So this Christmas story in John is, is quite different from Matthew and Luke. And it's not an eyewitness account, at least this prologue isn't. And it, it likely was written to people who in Matthew and Luke, were written to people who knew about the people and locations that were being talked about. And they could actually go and can kind of confirm those, those specific details if you talk to the right people. And John is writing to people who've never been to Israel, likely, possibly, who don't even speak Jesus' native language, Aramaic. His audience isn't necessarily familiar with the Old Testament and are likely Greek polytheists, or maybe they were, believing in many gods, and who may know very little of Jewish monotheism, believing in one God. And the Gospel of John, what's great about the Gospel of John is it really transcends cultural boundaries, and it was intended to do so, to the point that it is still considered the most accessible Gospel to new believers. And it's, it, if you are kind of out of sync with your Bible reading, John's a great place to come back to, or a great place to start. And John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is trying to capture the essence of who Jesus was and is to an audience completely outside of the context that Jesus lived in. John refers to Jesus as the word or the logos in Greek. And John is using this word in a completely new way. And he draws from both Jewish and Greek understandings to kind of come up with this new understanding that's completely redefined by the person of Jesus himself. The Greek understanding sees logos as the underlying logic or reason that governs the world. It is static. It means not moving. It doesn't change. It's eternal. And it just exists inexplicably apart from anything else and represents ultimate reality. But it isn't personal. It has no agency. It doesn't do stuff. It just is. It's like the way some people talk about science as the science you know, it, it holds explanatory power and carries a lot of weight, but it doesn't have a personhood or the ability to do something on it, its own. It just is. Then there's the Hebrew understanding that's, that's underlying this word here. That is being drawn on is, is that of wisdom, 
Proverbs 8 is an epic poem that personifies wisdom and its role in creation. Wisdom is personal and actively loves, delights, rejoices, and plays an active role in creating the world. And people are invited to have a relationship with wisdom as a guide for their life. So here we have these two conflicting worldview ideas. One is that the world is built upon this static, immovable, impersonal reality, logos, that is completely outside of God, or two, that the world is built by God using the active personal reality of wisdom that is established by God in the first place. And it's these two ideas that John is elevating, reforming into one new reality that is completely redefined in Jesus. John takes these two worldviews and he anoints them with the reality of Jesus as the Logos, as the Word. And the Logos is neither separate from God, part of God, or created by God. The Logos is God. He is eternal, existing before time began, but he is not separate from God. He is with God and is God in the beginning. Jesus is the Word. The Word as it's translated in English, is not something static like the Greek understanding, but personal. Personal. Think about how we use the phrase, may I have a word? May I have a word? May I have a word with you? We often mean, may I have a private conversation with you in which I can share something personal to me and relevant to you from which you then are invited to engage in a conversation with me related to that subject to the point we both are satisfied with the outcome. May I have the word? I have a word with you. That's usually what we mean. It's just unspoken. And we speak words with the intention and desire to be understood and to reveal something to someone else. Word implies the intention to communicate. In the beginning was the conversation, the dialogue, the communication, the revelation, the word. Now, there's one obvious question raised by the statement in John 1, 1. How can the word be with God and be God at the same time? Welcome to Christianity, everybody. Um, This is the mystery of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity teaches that God is Trinitarian rather than Unitarian. This means that God is three distinct persons that are each equally God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son, The Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. Yet each one is God, and there is only one triune Godhead. Now, this is difficult to understand, but it's it's not a contradiction. It's not illogical. It's not as though God math works differently than human math. One plus one plus one doesn't equal one. It equals three. I know that's a a fun kid song. But one plus one plus one still equals three. The thing is that the number of persons in, in God is a different category of thing than a number of beings of God. Three persons in one being. Not three beings in one being. That would be a contradiction. Not three persons in one person. That would be a contradiction. Three persons in one being. And just because it's not a contradiction doesn't mean it's not a mystery. I'm not saying it's easy to understand. But it's important for us to understand that this isn't a, a hard contradiction. We are unipersonal beings created by a tri-personal God. The the Trinity is difficult for us to understand, just like eternity is difficult for us to understand. Or God being all-knowing or all-powerful is difficult for us to to understand, because it's completely unlike our experience. 
but we don't base our understanding of God based on our experience. That's a fundamental reality of, of doing theology, studying God. We don't base our understanding of God on our experience, but on the witness of God's word. And the Bible reveals God triunely as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I could say a lot more about that, but that's, we'll, we'll move on. As the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, or the Word, is the active, active in creation. And so let's look at that in, uh, in verse 3. Jesus is active in creation. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. The Word, as the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, is involved in creating the world. The world was created by God through the Word. The word is not included in what was created. John makes it very clear. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. That precludes that the word is not made either. And we should immediately recall Genesis 1 here in this first opening line. When God speaks the world into being, God said, let there be light. And this is the living, active, creative word at work in creation. And this creative word is the pre-incarnate, pre-existent Son of God, Jesus. So who is Jesus? First and foremost, Jesus is the eternal creative word of God. The word that was before all things existed and all things were created through him. When we speak of Jesus as the word, Jesus is the complete revelation of God, the communication of God, the wisdom of God, the uniting principle of creation, the Son of God of God. There's no question or objection left for John's audience as to who he is speaking of and who the word is. John is not leaving any space for any kind of under other alternative understanding. In the first sentence, John is already starting his gospel out with, fittingly, with good news. That's what gospel means. The good news is the word itself implies intelligibility or the ability to be understood. Human beings are meant to know the word of God. The word implies meaning. The word implies an ability to comprehend the incomprehensible. The word implies a message that can be understood by human beings. It doesn't say, in the beginning was the mystery, or in the beginning was the code, or the equation. The word. Even children speak words understand words. The word is meant to be understood, revealed, received, and accepted. And the good news is that we can know the word. We can know him personally. The word is meant for us. Jesus is the word. Do you hear him? Do you know him? As we continue through this passage, we'll see that this good news just keeps getting better. John teaches that Jesus is the word, and he also reveals that Jesus is the light. Let's look at verse 4 and 5. If, I, if you haven't, if I haven't invited you to open up your Bible, that's why you're waiting. You shouldn't wait anymore. Open your Bible up to John 1. Um, we're going to be using it. Verse 4, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So John is continuing this theme of creation with light and life. And scientifically, we understand the close connection between life and light. The light and life have this close connection together. 
You know, most life on earth requires light to survive or at least to thrive. You know, there are some creatures that have adapted to, to places with, in darkness, in low light, but usually by optimizing the light that's available to them. But light is most often required for life. And Jesus is the light that brings life into the world. We're going to first talk about Jesus as the light, and then we'll talk about Jesus as the life. Notice in verse 5 how this light is something that is continuously active. The light shines in the darkness, shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. This is reflecting the Greek translation. Not something that happened in the past or happens once, but is a present reality today. Jesus is shining as light into our dark world as we speak, and the darkness has not overcome him. As opposed to light, darkness has no power to shine or push against the light. It can only retreat. And this verse also has the idea that the darkness did not understand or comprehend the light, implying that the darkness refers to those who have rejected and opposed Jesus. What this means is that to this day, since Jesus' ministry, Jesus has been pushing back the darkness, the opposition to his ministry and teachings and work and gospel. And the darkness has made no progress while the light continues to shine. This is the present reality of Jesus today. His light continues to shine in the darkness of our world. Even though there is immense opposition to the gospel, the darkness has no power over the light. Notice it's not our light. It's not our good works, but the light of Jesus himself that shines through the darkness and into the darkness. We do not produce light in ourselves, but it's the light inherent in the person and message of Jesus that shines through us into this dark world. And that is why we celebrate Christmas with lights and candles, lights on the tree, lights on our houses. And we are in the middle of some of the literal darkest days of the year during this time. And driving around at night, it's encouraging and fills the hearts of young and old alike with delight and joy to see light. And we should be constantly reminded of Jesus as the light of the world through the joy that comes from something as simple as Christmas lights. We made an attempt to go to the magic of the lights last night, which was a mistake, because we got there and there was literally two kilometers of cars lined up to get through through this drive-in light show. I... I I, to, to me, that just reflects that people are drawn to the light. You know, to, they, they want to see it. fills them with joy. There's something that it does to us. They were like, yeah, I like that. I, that's, that's cool. That's good. And so that's what it means for Jesus to be the light for us into this dark world. Bringing joy, bringing peace. So let's go to, to verse 6 to eight. After referring to the present reality of Jesus as the light, John turns to his recent past, our distant past, of Jesus' ministry where and how that came to be. Like the Gospel of Mark, who has no Christmas story, uh, he's, he's the Grinch of the Gospels, if you will. He does not talk about Christmas. Uh, John starts with John the Baptist, and we read this in verse six to eight. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. And John the Baptist was a popular guy. And it's possible that John's audience would, would have been even familiar with his ministry. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, 
Paul meets some of John's disciples in Ephesus and preaches the gospel to them and baptizes them and they receive the Holy Spirit. So all the way in Ephesus, and Ephesus would have been one of the churches that John is writing to, we have disciples of John. And so it's important for John that he addresses the ministry of John the Baptist, maybe even bringing in some more of John's disciples. And it, I, I think it's interesting that 12 of John's disciples are, are converted and baptized by Paul. That's, that's very symbolic as well. And John makes it very clear that John the Baptist, although playing a very key role in fulfilling prophecy, preparing the way for Jesus, he was not the light. We also see the first statement of John's purpose in writing. John, the gospel writer John, so that through him all might believe. That is the goal. That is the purpose. He's going to repeat that a lot in this book if you read the gospel of John. John is going to repeat this many times. It's the overarching goal and message of his writing, that you would believe in Jesus. He states that John the Baptist's role is to prepare people's hearts to receive the light that was coming in Jesus. So John now turns to Jesus' reception by the world, and this is verse 10 and 11. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So this is all a prologue. Uh, So it's a summary of what is to come of John's gospel. One theme in the gospels, including John's gospel, is the opposition to Jesus's ministry, particularly among the religious elites. So even though Jesus created the world, the world did not see Jesus for who he was. Even God's own people did not receive Jesus. So what do we learn from this? Well, the reality is, is that human beings are not naturally drawn to the light of Christ. In fact, they are opposed to it. Think of how you react when you, when you wake up or you come out of a dark room and there's like a blinding light in your face. You're just like, oh, it's like painful. Like you just like, get that away from me. If you're ever camping and you have kids with flashlights around, you're just like, they're just shining them in your eyes. And you're like, I, like I'm blind. Like it's, it's, it's horrible. And, and that's what it's like to have Jesus shining as a spotlight to everyone, to those that are living in darkness. For those that love the darkness and find their identity in the darkness, the light is not just uncomfortable, it is offensive. And we shouldn't be surprised when people hate the light and are opposed to Jesus. That is a totally natural response for them. They need God's spirit to draw them towards the light and to change their hearts, to unblind their eyes. And we need to continue to pray for our family members, our neighbors, and our coworkers that are in darkness. And maybe, maybe you feel like that's you. You feel like you are in darkness and do not have the light of Christ. If you're hearing this, that means God is already at work in your heart, and you need to respond in faith to Jesus and receive him as the word and the light. Jesus is the word we can know. And Jesus is the light we can shine. And Jesus is also the life we can live. So let's turn now to Jesus as the life. This is uh, starting in verse 4 and then repeated in, in 12 to 14. Life comes from the word because the word is the source of life. Apart from the word, there is no life. Peter refers to Jesus as the author of life in Acts 3 to 15. Jesus sees himself as the bread of life later in John 6.35. Jesus is the one that brings life to those that believe in his name. 
Listen to verse 12 and 13. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And this is where the good news really starts to amp up. All right, starts to move. Those who believe in the name of Jesus are given the right to become children of God. John makes it clear that this is a spiritual rebirth and not something that comes through ancestry or literal birth. New life is given to those who receive the word. How is this possible? Well, John continues with the most unexpected statement. It's a statement that we're used to hearing around Christmas time, but given our prior conversation regarding the meaning of the word logos, imagine how significant this statement would have been to the ancient audience. Let me read verse 14 once more. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. This is where you, like, this is like mind blowing. It it should be mind blowing. The word made his dwelling among us. Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrases this by saying, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. This can literally be translated, pitched his tent. Along with the references to being witnesses of his glory, we should be reminded of the tabernacle in the Old Testament and the tent of, and where God's presence will come to dwell and shine in his temple, often described as God's glory. Jesus is the temple where God's presence is made clear and his glory shines. He is sent from the Father and fully represents him as a fulfillment of his covenant promises to be with his people. This is the most succinct version of the Christmas story. The word became flesh. Jesus, the son of God, the eternal word, enters the creation, which he formed himself and becomes human. And this is how Jesus can offer new life through himself because he became flesh. That's how he's able to do it. You may think that Jesus would dishonor himself or lose his status when he condescends, which is to come down off from, from, from above to us and takes on a lowly human nature, but that's not the case. It's the reverse. He doesn't lose his status. He elevates our status. It's what gives him his power to raise us up. In the classic Christmas carol, Good King Wenceslas, an English carol about a duke from the Czech Republic, which I didn't know. I thought it was, I assumed it was an English king, but it's not. Uh, who is known to be kind to the poor and for walking barefoot in the snow, apparently. Uh, Good King Wenceslas braves a winter storm with his page to bring food and wine and firewood and to dine with a poor man who lives quite a distance away under Agnes Mountain or Agnes Fountain or something like that. Now, this carol has no Christ connection whatsoever, and we wouldn't necessarily sing it at, at church, having this king be the star of the show and really just representing a social gospel, but it's particularly Christian in its emphasis in caring for the poor. And one could argue, which I would, that king, good King Wenceslas represents a type of Christ. He condescends from his place as king to dine with the lowly poor peasant. And here's the question. Does good King Wenceslas lose his title or his glory or his authority when he dines with the poor man? No. 
Not at all. If anything, this is why we consider him to be a good king. It is the poor man that is elevated in this relationship, brought up from his lowly station to dine with the king. And even the, the, the young page is invited to walk closely with the king so that he will be warmed and walk in his steps. To me, that, that has to be an image of us drawing near to Christ and following him as well. And in the same way, doesn't Christ doesn't just doesn't give up his authority, his crown, or his glory when he comes to earth, at least not permanently. It's us that benefit permanently from Christ and elevated because he chooses to dine and dwell with us. Augustine puts it this way, by becoming a partaker of our mortality, Christ made us partakers of his divinity. It's a great statement. I'm going to say it again. By becoming a partaker of our mortality, our death, Christ made us partakers of his divinity, his life. Jesus lived and lived so that we could have life. And this is his stated purpose, stated purpose in John 10, 10. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. What does this tell us about our condition as human beings? That apart from Christ, we don't have life to the full. Human beings are spiritually dead and need to be reborn of God. We are not made for life apart from the life of Christ. Whatever life we live from, apart from Christ is a half-life, a spiritual deadness that only seeks after pleasure and comfort and only brings fractured relationships, violence, and pain into the world. We must be reborn of God. We must be born again. Only then can we live life to the full and experience eternal life. How should we respond to the word made flesh today? We're going to look at three applications that come directly from Jesus as the word, Jesus as the light, and Jesus as the life. The first is to listen to Jesus as the living and active word of God. Listen to Jesus speaking this Christmas season and into the new year. We live in a world full of many empty words, filled with endless noise. There are many channels we can tune into in our minds and in the external world. Negativity, worry, anger, stress, and things that amp those things up. But we have a choice of what we have to listen to. And we should listen to Jesus. We should listen to the word. Through his word, setting aside time to to read the word and to study the Bible and spend time with Jesus even in silent prayer, inviting Jesus to be with you by his spirit. And I encourage you to read, you know, the entire gospel of John, if you haven't done that in a while, or you can, you know, maybe even go to the the gospel of Mark if you're feeling a little bit grinchy, you know? Uh, And that's also, you can also get ready for next year. That's a hint. Read the gospel of Mark. Set aside time every day this year with a reading plan. Spend time to listen to Jesus how he is speaking to you this Christmas and into the new year. So don't miss that. Spend time listening to Jesus. He is the word and you can know him. Second, we should also spend time looking to Jesus and look to Jesus as the light of the world. Look to Jesus shining in our dark world amid suffering and war and anxiety and stress and darkness We should look to Jesus as the light of the world. 
Jesus is currently shining in the darkness now, but the darkness has not overcome it. We can trust his word, his teaching, his presence, his way of life to guide us through whatever comes this year. We can take heart because he has overcome the world. And Jesus continues to shine brightly in the world, and nothing is ever going to change that. So look to Jesus and dwell on how you can continue to shine the light of Jesus in your everyday walk with him. Third, we should and can live for Jesus as the giver of new life. Live for Jesus every day this next year. If you find yourself, again, feeling like you're living in in darkness and you, you don't know Christ, receive Jesus and be born again. Jesus offers you new life and life abundant. Whatever the world is selling you is not working, and it won't work. Jesus is the only one with the answers to life's biggest questions, and the only one who can deliver on your deepest desires. And we invite you to join us here at Summerside as we follow Jesus together and seek to be everyday disciples that make disciples every day. So ask us how you can receive Jesus' new life. As a follower of Jesus, if you are that, contemplate your own new birth this Christmas season and continue to live the life that Jesus has given you. Step confidently into the life that Jesus offers you in relationship with him. If you haven't yet been baptized, consider taking that next step to demonstrate the work of Christ in your life. And that's what it means to live for Jesus. Follow him in obedience. In the Gospel of John, we see Christmas beyond the major in these epic opening lines. A declaration of who Jesus is and of the wonder of the incarnation. John is inviting us and challenging us to respond to Jesus' claim as the life and the life and the light. I'm going to close with John's challenge from the lips of Jesus himself. As his friend Lazarus lay dead in the tomb, Speaking to, his, to his, Mar- Lazarus' sister, Jesus said this to Martha, and now speaks it directly to each one of us today. In John eleven twenty five to 26, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are a good God. And in sending Jesus, you have given us a gift beyond anything we could possibly imagine. You have made a way for us to know you in an intimate and personal way, revealing yourself through Jesus as the word, so that we can come to know him personally, the way that John did. You have given us the light in this dark world, you have not left us by ourselves, but given us hope and promised peace and life. And, and God, I pray for each one of the people here that they would discover, whether for the first time or new again, the new life that you offer. You offer something beyond just a way of life in this modern world, but a completely new way to walk in this world in a fullness of life 
that is incomparable to anything else. It is not just one of many ways, but it is the way, the best that you have to offer. And we thank you and bless you for all the things that you have given us. And as we, as we gather around tables all this week and into next week, as we celebrate and, and as we look at the, the year before us and the year behind us, may we remember that Jesus is the word, that Jesus is the light and Jesus is the life. And he invites us to know him so that we can be with you forever. Draw us in even now as we worship. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.